Hello, my fabulous teacher friends. Welcome to another episode of Confessions of a PYP Teacher. I'm Lou Gerlock, and I am so excited about this episode. It is Confession 104, where we're going to go from local to global. Woohoo! The moment has finally come, my friends. We get to merge the local inquiry with a global context. I'm physically and metaphorically rubbing my hands together with glee. I can't wait to put these ideas together to create something meaningful. When I think of the relationship between the local and global inquiry, the first thing that pops into my mind, I don't know what pops into yours, is Project Zero, Visible Thinking Routine, Projecting Across Distance. This amazing thinking routine helps learners to stretch their understanding about a local or isolated content and make relevant and significant connections. It has become one of my favorite routines to use to explore more complex issues that humanity is universally experiencing at the same time. And in some way, it makes it easier to realize that, you know, you are not alone in this. So let's take a deep dive in the actual structure of this thinking routine. And how does it work? So this I'm going to just review first um, the directions. Pick a topic, event, or issue that might be approached differently in different parts of the world or even your own country, such as food security, population growth, or marriage practices. Then consider it from the following perspectives. How is the topic, event, or issue playing out or viewed in your community? Another city or town in your country? A country east or west of your country where people may think differently about the theme, event, or issue. A country north or south of your country where people may think differently about the theme, event, or issue. And then this is such a beautiful question to ask. What might account for the similarities and or differences between and within the communities and countries? So to apply this visible thinking routine, I'm going to conduct research-based um, inquiry on places that have a significant place in my heart through personal travel or living in the country. And I'm sorry to geek out. Um, I'm probably going to go a lot deeper than I would, let's say, with students. But it's going to help us to get a picture of what this looks like um, in these places that I love. Um, cause I just love this stuff and I know you secretly are nerding out there saying, yes, let's go there, Lou. So let's think about our content standard or something within scope and sequence where most children will look at the concept of energy. And so the issue that we've been unfolding is access to balanced food and clean water, because that is something that is, um, commonplace around the world. So how I'm breaking this out is we're going to look at different places. How is that issue playing out? So what are they doing about it? What does it look like? And then what are the possible resolutions to the problem or the issue? That makes sense. So I'm going to look within my own community. This is piggybacking on work that we've done here in Houston, Texas, in the middle of America. Well, it's Southern, but, you know, dead center. 
Um, looking at an issue that many people do not have access to a balanced diet based on their income. So they resort to going to corner shops. The problem is, is a lot of um, people, whether they're on government assistance or, you know, have limited income, they have access to a lot of unhealthy snacks um, because they're cheaper. And their water source may be clean, but is it, you know, fit for regular consumption? They've done a lot of studies on this water here. And it's clean. Like, I don't even feed my or give my dog the water. I filter the water for him, even. So if I won't give it to my dog, would I drink it? No. All right. So then thinking of, and I'm also traumatized from past experiences where the water source was not pure. Possible resolutions is provide more nutritionally balanced meals. Let's say in school, um, there's no more processed meats and side dishes. Provide um, more tap water filters. I know that that has been an initiative. Or life straws to lower income renters and homeowners. Something that I discovered is that there's a Houston Food System Collaborative um, that partners with the Houston Food Bank and it's a group of dedicated individuals and organizations committed to facilitating the growth of sustainable local food system that is accessible through education, innovation, and collaboration. I love this. And as I went through the list, um, there were many organizations I've worked at in uh, my past school experience. Just good people trying to make a difference in the world. What's really great about capturing this information. I've provided links um, in the document. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how I'm going to put this onto the Padlet, but more than likely I'll put it um, separately so that you can see. We'll just see how it goes. I mean, not on the Padlet. What am I thinking? On the blog. Okay. So I'm working on that. So thinking of another city or town in my country, I went for the Big Kahuna, which is New York City. And one thing that I found about this issue um, through the research is that black and Latinx residents are disproportionately affected by inequities in food, retail environments, and bear the greatest burden of food insecurity and diet-related diseases in New York City. In October 2021, the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene passed a resolution declaring racism a public health crisis interesting they said that the covid 19 pandemic has exacerbated existing inequities in food environments and also created new problems disruptions to supply chains and shifts in demand caused by the pandemic have contributed to significant increases in food retail prices it is estimated that food security currently affects 1.4 million New York City residents, which represents a 36% increase from pre-pandemic rates. Wowzers. So you've got a lot of people there who don't have access to balanced diets. And so what are they trying to do about it? And what's really amazing in my research that I've found is that there's a lot of um, street, like mom and pop shops 
Um, and the food that they serve, I even saw one video. They'll make sandwiches with fruity cereal and this and that just to be creative. But the reality is that's high fat, high sugar um, content, and it, but it's cheaper than going to the grocery store and getting fruits and vegetables and a nice salad and a nice piece of salmon, right? And so thinking about that, the New York, um, there's a resolution called the New York Food 2025. It also is a collaborative effort by Hunter College, New York City, um, Food Policy Center, the Lori M. Tisch Center for Food, Education, and Policy, and the, um, the SUNY um, Urban Food Policy Institute. And what they're looking at is the effects of the pandemic on New York City's food policies and programs and propose specific policy measures um, to the New York City Mayor and City Council to consider to build a stronger, healthier, and more just and sustainable food system in New York City. So in 2022, this collaborative is trying to further increase funding to emergency food programs um, that support fresh food procurement during times of crisis. By 2025, they're trying to ensure universal definition of healthy food used by all New York City agencies and emergency programs so that what does healthy food look like, right? And expand citywide incentive programs for fruits and vegetables for more New York City residents and move away from that emergency food model that limits choice um, to one that maximizes choice and enhances dignity. So in prepackaged process, once again, are we seeing a resonation here? I'm seeing the same message happening as that more prepackaged, unhealthy options are bursting in New York City just as they are in Houston. And this is a first world nation, right? And so thinking about that, I wanted to go to another first world nation, which I absolutely love, which is a country east or west of us. To me, this country has my heart. Can you guess what it is? Anyone? To me, it's Australia. I love you Aussies. And there's a similarity, but a difference to their approach. And that's the one thing that I've always loved about the Aussies. Um, I was shook when I was looking at listenership by location. I've got so many amazing teachers listening in from Melbourne, Brisbane, and Sydney. I love y'all. I hope that within the next year, I'm down there possibly doing some training tour and also just meeting you and ha possibly getting a group together where we have some fellowship and build some bonds because that's what it's all about. And the one thing that I love is that Australia has owned its truth. They recognize, and this comes directly from the Australian government, not some nonprofit group. That's where I get all my information from, right? From the U S meanwhile, the Australian government is saying that there are certain groups in their country more susceptible to food insecurity. And that includes unemployed people, single parent households, low income in earners, rental households, and young people. 
Wow, right? And the reason is because of lack of resources, including finances, transportation, lack of access to nutritional food at affordable prices, lack of access to food due to geographical isolation, and lack of motivation or knowledge about a nutritious diet. Let's peel back the onion a little bit more. Indigenous populations may be vulnerable to food insecurity with 30% of indigenous adults reporting being worried about going without food. Rates of food insecurity are highest in remote communities. However, indigenous people living in urban environments are also vulnerable to food insecurity due to poor income, household infrastructure, overcrowding, transport, storage, and cooking facilities. And this really struck out to me the most. In remote locations, food supply is often limited to a general store that is not always open and is often expensive with a 26% higher price of a basket of food in remote count, uh, community stores when compared to, let's say, a Darwin or Perth or Melbourne supermarket. And I've been in those remote locations and there's nothing. It's desert and desert, right? And so what is the government trying to do about it? They're recognizing that child and family services in Australia play a key role in improving the food security of their clients, right? And underlying the factors of food insecurity. So they piloted a community kitchen project based in one of my favorite little places, Frankston, Victoria, right by the beach. I've often dreamt about having a little house there. Love y'all, Frankston. And this program aims to improve participants' food security by getting knowledge and skills while reducing social isolation. And so thinking about that in regards to the poor physical and financial access to quality affordable fresh produce, which is a barrier for many community members. And what they found from running um, a program teaching about nutritional balance, um, different foods that were indigenous to the areas, they saw an improvement in cooking skills, nutritional knowledge, meal planning, budgeting, shopping habits, an increase of fruit and vegetable consumption by 43%, 64% reduction of fast food consumption, improvements in food safety and hygiene practices, mental health and well-being, and 43% of these people felt like they should join community groups. Totally different, right? It's about not only the physical health, but it's about the mental health as well. And that's what I love about this process. So now I'm going to go to a country north or south of me, which is equally, uh, I love this place. I've been there many a time. Um, it's one of those places that just stays with you, which is the Dominican Republic. Um, and I did a lot of research in here. And just in the past few years, they are showing significant growth um, towards um, things like infant mortality, sustaining life. Um, but 
16% of the population cannot afford access to a healthy diet with the income they receive due to the cost of it being about $4.06 per person, U.S. Think about that. The report that I got um, uh, looking at some places, Food for the Hungry, the U.S. Embassy, Dominican Today, looked at the UN Sustainable Development Goal of Zero Hunger and looking at systems that need to be in place so that healthy and affordable diets um, are available for the entire population. And they reference that the UN believes that addressing these factors will require significant transformations in food systems. And these include rebalancing agricultural policies and incentives through the food supply chain and social protection policies for countries to increase purchasing power. Um, and at the end, get accessing higher um, and healthier diets. And one thing I didn't know is that for about six decades, the U.S., through the agents that's called the U.S. Agency for International Development, they've partnered with the Dominican government to look at investing about $80 million dollars um, for clean water, sanitation, and health services. And with the um, Center for Disease Control and Prevention um, and during the, with COVID-19, um, a, a big push was keeping hands clean um, to prevent from the virus spreading. And something that I found that uh, was really interesting is that that the indicator of undernourishment um, has decreased, falling from 19.3 to 5.5, and that um, that's about 600,000 um, undernourished Dominicans. But there's still food insecurity there, right? We're still not um, there. And what I find fascinating about all of this is that a country that's so close to my own, such a disparity of access. And I just love these people. They're just so wonderful. So why is it that there's no more access? Now, I'm going to go now. Um, this is something I'm adding to me is that I've done north, south, east, west, but now I'm going to truly go across distance. Like I went to Australia, which is right near me, um, east, west. Oh, uh, well, it'd be west, but um, I'm really going the distance now, which of country also that really speaks to my heart is India. Also, I was shocked. They're the second largest population of listeners to this podcast. I just... And I have been to India a couple times uh, while I lived in Dubai. And it's such a rich country, so big and vast that it's kind of like my own where depending on where you go, the people are going to look, act, think differently. And it's estimated that waterborne diseases have an economic burden of nearly 600 million U.S. dollars a year in India. This is especially true for drought and flood prone areas, which has affected a third of the nation in the past couple of years. Um, this comes from UNICEF. Less than 50% of the population in India has access to safely managed drinking water. 
um, or chemical contamination of the water, mainly through fluoride and arsenic, and that's in 1.96 million dwellings. Excess fluoride in India may be affecting tens of millions of people across 19 states. And so thinking about all of that, um, also there's a analysis from the Food and Agricultural Organization that showed that hundreds of millions of people in India, you know, are living above the international poverty line. But they can't afford a healthier, nutritious diet. And this analysis confirms the fact that the problem of poor nutrition in India is largely on, on account of affordability of good diets, not the account of lack of information on nutrition or a taste of cultural preferences. So unlike in Australia, where they didn't understand how to cook properly, these people know how to cook properly, they just don't have access based on the wage that they make. And um, what's really interesting I found of what are they doing about it is that the Ministry of, excuse my bad pronunciation, the Jal Shakti launched Swajal, a pilot project that is designed as a demand-driven program involving the community to provide sustainable access to safe drinking water to people in rural areas. And that this program is empowering communities to plan design, implement, and monitor single village drinking water supply schemes. So, and they're trying to um, look at 117 um, different districts across 28 states. One thing that really fascinated me is that when you looked at the diet, majority of when I looked up Indian diets, it said um, for the rest of us as a humanity, we should look to the Indian diet as a model because they're much healthier than us. And I was like, hey, go my friends. So that's something to consider. So when we're synthesizing all of this, we're thinking about that question that was posed to us. What might account for the similarities and or differences between and within the communities and countries? And the commonality between all the countries explored is that there's a disparity of access to clean water and balanced eating opportunities based on income level. That was something that was universal across the way. As expected, the majority of the issues occurred in rural areas outside of big cities due to infrastructure and ease of access. That makes sense too. What I found fascinating is that in the United States and Australia, the highest population that did not have access to balanced diets were people of color. Although Australia is trying to put, you know, forward initiatives to teach people living in poor conditions, um, there's still a huge disparity driven by color, which looks at why. I mean, at the end of the day, why? And so that goes into systemic issues that have been put in place that we need to look at as people. But I will have to say, I love how Australia is owning its truth with the indigenous population um, so that they can move forward. And although India has, you know, more increased clean water access in rural areas, um, you know, they're trying at least, uh, you know, most people in general in the cities have access to clean water. Back talking to my friend Vidya, 
you know, she talks about water delivery and that sort of thing. And, and having lived in that region, you get your 20 gallon jugs, you know, lining up by the, but in the kitchen, um, so that, and they come every one or two weeks, depending on how your frequency of water consumption. So there is access. It's just, um, and it was, I'll be honest, there was limited data to support about balanced or unbalanced diets um, and healthier eating systems there. But I found this all fascinating. I know it's a lot of data, but this is what our students need to go through of carefully gathering information and then vetting it all. Well, what's going to be my message? What am I going to focus in on? How am I going to take all of this um evidence or this data that I've collected, what am I going to do with it? And how am I going to move it forward? Oh, I'm so glad you asked because that's going to be our next episode. Aren't you excited? I know I am. So I'll talk to you soon, my friends.